in. It's supposed to be wet today, apparently. It's cold already. I can't believe when I got out of the house, it was like Michigan cold out there. So I know that Oklahoma can get cold, but that was a little brisk. And so congratulations. You got up. You got out. If this is your first time with us, you can always get up in the middle of this and get coffee. If you need to leave, leave. Uh, Just don't leave by storming out and going, that was lame. That would be offensive and hurtful, and I wouldn't be able to come back. So, hey, uh, it is good to be together in the morning and uh, and to focus in on what God has for us. Just as a reminder, at Man Challenge, we just want to be the men God has called us to be. It's uh, more than just a slogan. The heart of that is that God has an idea of what we ought to be as men. Our culture has a very mixed idea of what we are to be as men. And so when we come together here, we just rally around the central idea of what does it mean that we want to be men that follow God? What does it mean for us to give God our very best? What does it mean for, God, for us to yield ourselves to God? And so, so coming in here today, this is a great time to gather together. We're going to open up God's Word and we're going to explore that theme together. And uh, how many of you seen like some sort of superhero movie where there was an origin story, right? Yeah, we all know origin story. That wasn't a term that was used a whole lot until the last several years is the whole idea of origin story. So, for instance, origin story, where did Superman come from? Krypton, right. How did Spider-Man get his special abilities? Uh, a radioactive spider bite, right? Here's one that you may not know because it's a throwback to a different era. Um, who was it that killed all of the Lone Ranger's friends? Who's the enemy of the Lone Ranger? ISIS, yeah, there you go. That's a good one. Butch Cavendish. Butch Cav- that would be something our parents might know or our grandparents might know. But every like superhero has an origin story. And over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the origin story of manhood. We're going to look at where did it emerge from. And, and the central text for all of this is God's word. So we're going to be in the first chapter of Genesis. So, you know, if you've been here over the last semester, you know, you know, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. I'm the son of a factory worker and a secretary. And, and uh, I grew up watching those John Hughes movies like uh, uh, Breakfast Club and Home Alone and Uncle Buck just to see what like suburbia looked like. My big dream for life was to live in suburbia because I lived in a rough section of the inner city. So part of my origin story was like this competitive drive to succeed so that I didn't have to live in the neighborhood I grew up in. I got nothing against that neighborhood. My folks still live in the neighborhood. But as for me and my offspring, I wanted to live in those John Hughes movies. And now I'm not in one of those John Hughes houses, if you know those movies, because those are pretty fabulous houses. But, but that was part of my drive. So I have like a drive in me that came from my origin story. And some of you can relate to that. And, uh, and we all have some sort of a origin story, something that drives us. In fact, every guy here, every one of you here has a drive in you to get you out of bed early, gather up with some other guys, open God's word, and explore what's it mean to, to be like a God-honoring man. That says something about your drive. And it probably has some rooting in your, in your, your origin story. Maybe it was a parent that, uh, that was a good role model and you said, I want to be like dad, or maybe it was the opposite. Maybe, maybe parents were a disappointment and you had a different role model. You had a different aspiration, but you have a spiritual drive in you. That's why you're here. And so when we ask the question, you know, where, what is the origin story of manhood? We don't have to 
like guess where that starts. That starts in the first chapter of Genesis. So if you have a copy of the Bible, feel free, find it, Genesis 1. Easiest part of the Bible to find. It's like the first two pages, so not hard at all. And uh, we're not going to start at the very, very beginning of it. You can read that on your own. But we're going to start with the part where God made people. And this is in verse 26 of the very first chapter of the very first book of the most important book in any language. It says this, Then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so you got the handout there. The the first big idea here is that all people, all people are made in God's image. There is not a human on the planet Earth that is not made in God's image. Now, we might work with some people that we have some question marks about, right? <laughs> some of us know some people like, I don't know if that guy's made in God's image. It might have been made in the devil's image, you know? But every human being is made in God's image. And this, this is a key concept for us as men in our modern culture to understand. Because in our modern culture, there is a contrary religious worldview called naturalism. Now, I'm not talking about science. Science and Christianity have no conflict with one another. But there is a worldview called naturalism. And naturalism says that people came about with no purpose, sort of accidentally, through a series of sort of good luck steps, if you will, that there were little spurts of modifications starting back with single-cell things that eventually resulted in us. And there was no outside force that did it. We just happened along on the lucky planet where life could be sustained in the fashion that we think of as life. And as we kind of came along, then we evolved from primates or something akin to primates. And as our brains developed, we were trying to make sense of the universe in which we lived. And so we concocted sort of religious worldviews. That's naturalism. That's not science. And I think that's important to understand. Because that is, some people who are scientists will say, this is how we all came about. There is no God, there is no first mover, there is no one who has inserted itself, himself, herself into humanity to make us what we are. And that is the aspect of a sort of a modern cultural expression that is probably the only thing that doesn't integrate at all with Christianity. Because some of you have studied science at universities and have kept your faith intact. Some of you have had professors who were notable uh, scientists in their field, and they had faith. And sometimes in some church settings, and some of you might have grown up in a church setting, that said, well, you know, Christianity and science kind of conflict with each other. They have different ways of looking at things. And that's not, that's not true. You could be a person who is deeply engaged in the field of science and deeply engaged in your faith. Now, if you are part of the philosophical worldview of naturalism, that one's hard to integrate with Christianity because it starts with the presupposition, there is no God, we made him up. So you can kind of see where that one would be hard to hold on to that one and the faith. But you can certainly hold on to a scientific worldview that says, hey, let's explore and observe and see what we can see and make sense of the world around us. Now, that's just for free. That's like sort of an aside. That, that's not necessarily something to do with uh, manhood other than this helps us root 
in the formation origin story where we all came from. So we can have some clarity. We didn't just happen along the way. And it wasn't just men became what men are because men muscularly are stronger than females or something like that. That would be a purely naturalistic worldview. This, uh, this um, kind of taps into, in fact, sorry, I'm behind on my slides. This, uh, this taps into one of my favorite uh, philosophers, Arthur Holmes. He says, all truth is God's truth. That's a good one, isn't it? All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's God's. If it's not true, it's not his because he doesn't lie. So if it's true, it's true. It belongs to God. Two plus two, you get these two together and it's four. That is true. That's God's truth. All truth belongs to God. And so that led, uh, that, that's why St. Augustine, one of his uh, quotes is, the truth is a lion, you don't need to protect it, just set it free. So I, this is just a great place for us as men to start. When we're talking about the origins of, of men, as we're talking about where we all came from, is to not be afraid of what is true. So we don't have to hide out from some things. We can engage in philosophical discussions and debates of, of where we all came from. We don't have to shirk back from any sort of uh, responsibility. But we also don't have to defend God. We can just let God defend himself. And so, uh, so that uh, you know, takes us right back to the text again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Which is also good to be clear. Women weren't made like as an offshoot of man's image. Men and women are made in the image of God. So this leads to this first question that we're going to kind of explore together a little bit. Is um, who's the us and who's the our? Let us make man in our image. Who is the plural in the pronoun? And uh, there's multiple answers to this. The first one we're going to look at is the theological answer. It's called the theological answer. And the theological answer was the, the answer that the early church fathers, like when Christianity first was born, the first like thousand years, this was what they said. They said that the us, let us make man in our image, was an expression, an early expression, a wink at the idea of a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. The God's one person, or, or one God in three persons, blessed Trinity, as the hymn goes, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's not said here, that is, the Father isn't saying, hey, Holy Spirit and Son, let's do this. But this is an uh, assumption that the early church had. Now, here's the problem with taking this as an early nod purely as the Trinity. There's a, I want to introduce just this is good way of understanding how to interpret the Bible. When you get into Bible reading on your own, there are good ways and not good ways to interpret the Bible. The best way that you, you dig into, you read a section of Scripture, you go, what was it that the author intended? Like, this is where it's helpful to have some general idea who wrote the thing. What did he mean? What was he trying to convey? What was he trying to con- communicate all those years ago? And, and what, what did the people back then, when they hear it, what did they understand? That would be a proper interpretation. 
So the problem with uh, taking the us and the our as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's a, there's a reason why this is an important question for us to ask, and I'm going to get to it before too long, but what, what the author intended, so Moses is who historically we have uh, surmised wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He may have compiled stuff other people had written or compiled oral tradition. So what did Moses intend? Well, Moses didn't intend to communicate anything about a Trinitarian concept of God because he didn't have one. It's nowhere in in the first five books of of the scriptures does he convey any understanding of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what did the people understand? They certainly didn't have any concept that Moses didn't have. And so... Now, this is, what, this is a way that many, many people interpret the Bible right now. What I want the author to have intended. You ever done this? You read something and you're like, I don't care what he meant. I, this is what I want him to have said. And then what I understand. Who cares about the original audience? You get into Galatians and you're like, ah, the Apostle Paul wrote it. This is what I want. I'm going to, I'm going to tell him what he wrote. And this is what I understand. Who cares about the Christians living in Galatia? And that leads to a preferred interpretation. Now, this is, uh, this is important, and this is sort of for free. This is a little extra, because as men, in particular, when we get into some aspects of Scripture down the road, like in the New Testament, where it calls upon men to, say, be leaders in their home. When a guy says, you know what, I want the author to have meant is be dictator, governor, overseer, power broker of my house. That's what I want him to say. That's what I want him to mean by leadership. I don't care what he meant. That's what I want him to mean. And so how I understand this is I'm the boss. My dad in our home, he was the boss. Mom, he would ding his coffee cup and she'd refill it. For real, my dad did that. Uh, would any any married guys, would any of your wife hop up and refill your coffee cup? Uh, you know, some might on a certain day, but mo- you know what? Uh, but this is, guys, this is to be, be on the lookout for this. Just this is sort of like a red flag warning that this happens all the time in our modern culture. This is so stinking common that people will read into the Bible what they want to read into the Bible. And so we could say, I'd like to see the Trinity in that first passage of Scripture, but that's not what Moses meant. That's not what the original hearers meant. And so there's a grammatical answer. I won't spend a lot of time on this one. This is what the rabbis, you might go, well, how does a Jewish person interpret that? Because they don't believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How do they, how do they interpret it? Well, they just say that we don't understand fully the ancient Hebrew grammar. And I won't get into the technical aspects of that because it's too early. And even if it was like prime time, middle of the day, it's still not that interesting. But there's a grammatical answer to it nonetheless. And then there is a cultural answer. And uh, this has found favor in recent times when people are trying to explore what, what on earth did this first couple, pa- first couple sentences mean is there's a culture, like, the culture idea is how, um, how there's a, a royal we. That the one, one aspect of the cultural uh, interpretation is that uh, a king might be in his kingly court and say, let us, let us have a holiday. And he's declaring he is instituting a holiday. But he's, 
He's being rather kingly about it. And so let us, he's, he's using plural pronoun. He's speaking of himself in a royal plural. Now, imagine the heavenly court. That's what this one kind of imagines, where God, with angels, says to the angels, let us make man in our image. The question then is, are we made in the image of God and some angels? Some, some suggest. Or, are the angels made in God's image as well? Could be. So when he says, let us make man in our image, he really is just doubling down on himself. Could be. Don't know for sure what he means by that. And it really could be it really could be all three of these in some aspect. So it's not important entirely for us to decide which one it is, but it's helpful for us to know some of the background. And part of what I try to do in Man Challenge is sort of elevate our thinking so so that we have sort of a, a scholastic understanding of some of these things. And so uh, before we get into then the second question, let's go on and continue reading the first part of Genesis. It says, uh, God blessed them. God blessed them and, and said to them, so he says to people, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it. They will be yours for food and and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant of food, and so it was. So here's the second question. What are the, what are the implications? What are the implications of being made in the image of God? What, what does it mean that we are made in the image of God? And the first implication, and this one's key, the first implication is that all people have dignity. All people have dignity. You have dignity. Everyone sitting at your table has dignity. Everybody in this room has dignity. The people you work with have dignity. Uh, If you're married, your spouse has dignity. If your neighbors, even though they act undignified, they have dignity. Uh, every, Every person you come into contact with has dignity. So what this means, and I... Fellas, in our culture, I can't believe I even have to say stuff like this. What this means is, there shouldn't be any racism. I'm a little, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s where there was all kinds of conversation about racial reconciliation and understanding people that look different from us. I can't believe we're still dealing with that in our culture today. But as Christian men, there shouldn't be a hint of that. There shouldn't be, there shouldn't be biases against somebody because they came from a different place on the planet or they came from our neighborhood but they look different. Racism, that's not something that ought to live within the household of faith because everyone, everyone is made in God's image. That relates to the next one, which there should be no tribalism. Tribalism is a little different because the person could uh, look identical to you, but you might have a bias against them because they went to, they, they, they have a different, uh, some sort of different kind of social connections. They're not part of your tribe. They didn't go to your school. They don't work at your company. They don't. We tribe up in all kinds of weird ways. We, have, we practice tribalism right now in the world of politics where people don't listen to each other or hear each other because that's their tribe, my tribe, and the tribes face off against each other. And I'm not going to say one tribe's better than another because tribalism by its very nature just sort of tribes up and then looks at other people as sort of lesser. 
And that's, there shouldn't be any of that. There shouldn't be classism. That meaning, that meaning that there shouldn't be biases against or for people because of their financial status, because of where they're able to shop or, or have to shop, what they drive. They, there shouldn't be that type of classism. Now, what, here's what's interesting. I shared sort of my origin story coming out of working class blue collar is that some of my friends that got out of the hood, they have biases stronger against people in the hood than people who've never even been residents of such a place. Now, that, that one's interesting. You can, you can have a classism against your own people group. Some people come out of uh, a wealthy, affluent class and end up with a bias against it because that's where they came from. But it doesn't matter where we came from. We ought not have this bias for or against people because of their financial status, their education, their zip code, that sort of thing. That, that's not proper for a Christian understanding. No sexism. We, men and women each have something to contribute uniquely, but there ought not be a bias against a woman because she's a woman. And that also means there ought not be, as men, the, uh, the lurid gaze. Harvey Weinstein has finally gone to trial, and they said it was very hard. I was listening to the radio this morning. Very hard to find a, a juror that doesn't know something about the case in New York City. I can only imagine how much fun, if any of you are lawyers, imagine the fun of picking out that juror, jury pool is trying to find, you know, at least weed out the bad ones. But, but there, what's, it, what, what's the core issue there? is that women were degraded and treated poorly. And as, as men of God, that, you know, the women that come into contact with us should feel like we're treating them as sisters, that we are treating them with, with kindness. We're treating them with honor and respect and with dignity. And then uh, no ageism. There, is, there, shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a bias against someone because they're old or because they're young. There, there may be understandings of what they're able to do and bring. You know, it's not ageism to not let an 80-year-old player uh, join an NFL football team. That might be a kindness to him and to anyone viewing. But, uh, that's, but, but to view people, regardless of their age, as having this dignity. You know, even if in their, their, their last moments lying in a hospital bed, there's dignity there. So that's why, that's why as, as Christians, that's why many Christian people insist that uh, we ought not terminate life at any stage before the child is born or as they get later along in life. And there's some pragmatists who will say, you know what, no, this is just not that big a deal. It is a big deal because all people have dignity. Made, and the reason they have dignity isn't because they're human. The reason they have dignity is that they're made in the image of God. So that's the rooting for us. They have dignity. And the, and the word there is value. The word is value. If dignity is too lauded a term, just think, everyone has value. Everyone has infinite worth. Everyone has some value. So this is all, um, this is all implication number one. People have dignity. The word is value. So implication number two is that people have responsibility. You go back to the text. They have responsibility. It says, uh, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, you remember the, uh, the formula of proper interpretation that you, you look at what the author intended and what the people heard, 
and that's your proper understanding. So think about, think about that, that passage of Scripture, be fruitful. I think I have a slide for it. Be fruitful and multiply. Just look at that text. What do you suppose Moses meant and the people read or understood in that text? There you go. Have kids. That's right. That's right. By, spoken by the single guy in the room. Have kids, right? That's right. We know what's on your mind. Because it's on our mind too. So you, you look at the, you look at the, so what they, when they heard be fruitful, they, they literally were like, go have a bunch of kids. Fill up the tents. Have as many kids as your wife can bear. And then when she, you know, dies, get a new wife and have a bunch of kids with her. Because that's what happened back then. They you know, about every fourth kid, they died in childbirth, got a new wife, and, you know, so on and so forth. My, I come from, I am, the, I am from the third wife of my great-grandpa Jenkins. He kept getting married. Those poor women gave him tons of kids, and they died somewhere in childbirth till Janie Jenkins came along. Wife number three, and he had like 11 kids with her. You know, I, I can only imagine what that wagon must have looked like. Can, what, did they have 15 passenger wagons back then? I don't know. That's right. But that's what they heard. Be fruitful. Uh, subdue the earth. Well, they, you know, they heard. It. They looked around. Earth was wild. Tame it. You know. <coughs> Build a path where there was no path. Build a road. Tame the earth. Rule over nature. Harness the resources. And, you know, when, when we think of this, we don't tend to think in the same way. All right? When, and, and it's okay to draw principles out of it. So this is, a, this is taking that good Bible interpretation, go, what's it mean to me? What does it mean for me to be a fruitful person? Does it mean that I have to get married and just have as many children as we possibly can have? No. No, that, we can, tell, we can draw out some principles from it. So be fruitful is, you know, it could be expand your family. It could be expand your relationships. It could be expand your work. The idea of fruitfulness in the Bible has broad connotation to it. It can mean very specifically, and in this case, very specifically, have a bunch of kids, but for us, it doesn't mean go get a 15-passenger van and teach our kids to sew their own clothes and churn their own butter. If you have 15 kids and you do that, congratulations. I'm not knocking it. But, but it can mean in our work, in our endeavors, be very fruitful. To subdue, we probably aren't out there with a the brush hog carving a new path through the HOA. And I'm pretty sure that if we did that in the nature preserve areas, people wouldn't always appreciate our endeavors. If you quote this Bible verse, Adam, you still might get a restraining order. So to subdue in our culture today would be to organize sort of the wild and the chaotic, to take what's unruly and, and to domesticate that. So that could be even you, you get charged as a manager of a new area because you're the new manager, because the reason you're the new manager is the old manager let things kind of go wild. And you have to subdue it. You have to organize it. It's part of your biblical mandate to actually make a difference. To rule over it might be to, to harness the power and to make it, make it work for the good of the many. So it might be to utilize those resources. It might be to be the, the leader of a territory the leader of a division, the leader of, of your office unit. But it is to rule over. So you see what I'm doing here, and this is, is what I'm going to encourage you to do is in the, this week, in this in-between week between now and next Thursday, is ask yourself, what does it mean for me to be fruitful? What does it mean 
for me to be involved in this idea of subduing the earth? What's it mean to rule over something? What does, what does that mean? In the, in the, in the word that uh, might help us understand this a little more deeply is stewardship. To be a steward of the opportunities and the resources that God's entrusted to us. What you think about it, a steward is, we use that term to differentiate between an owner. So a steward doesn't own, say, the property. A steward doesn't own, uh, doesn't own the company. A steward doesn't own the restaurant. A steward doesn't own an aspect of the business. The owner owns that stuff, right? A steward takes responsibility, a serious responsibility, for something that belongs to another person. So if I think about it, like I think I, I own a home, but I don't really own a home. The bank owns the home. And as long as I keep sending the bank a monthly thing, it's my home. If I quit doing that, the bank owns the house, right? But let's fast forward and let's say I write my final check and it is my house. I own it outright, free and clear. The only thing I have to do is pay the great state of Oklahoma some taxes just so that I can stay in the house and not get behind and get in trouble with them. So it's my house. Is it my house? It's not my house. I mean, someday, when I'm gone, either I move or I die, the house goes up for sale. And, and nobody who buys it will be like, well, it's nice living in Search's house. That's great. It's their house then. Every house becomes somebody else's house down the road. That whatever we think we own, we're actually just stewards of for a while. Your car you're probably not going to own it until the day you draw your last breath. And even if you do, guess what? Then it goes to somebody else. You're a steward of your car. You're a steward of your house. You're a steward of your place of employment. If you own the company, you're even a steward of the company you own because at some point it will transition into somebody else's hands, right? So this is a really key concept for us. And if you only come away with like one concept from this morning, come away with the idea that I'm a steward. I'm a steward at my place of work. I'm a steward of my, even my family. Someday, if I'm fortunate, my picture will be hung on some wall and future generations will go, who was that guy, right? <laughs> oh, he was your great grandpa, you know, because, you know, do any of you have great grandpa's picture on your wall? A couple of you do. <laughs> Most of us don't, right? I don't, okay, truth be told. But if I'm flipping through the photo album and someone's like, if Jack, my boy, says, who is that? I go, oh, that was your great-grandpa or your great-great-grandpa. At some point, we're in the, in, the, in the tail, you know, we're in the rearview mirror of all this stuff. And so what we are stewarding, though, is, is even the family as it moves forward. I sometimes ponder the aspects of who I am that are connected to previous generations. I know very, very little about my great-great-grandpa Thorne on my dad's side of the family. But what I do know is that he was a Sunday school superintendent of a church that was quite large in the suburbs of Philadelphia at the turn of the last century. And when I found that out, I was already a pastor, and I thought, that's weird. There's a man I never knew. I never had a conversation. He was long gone by the time I was born. And this was a guy deeply engaged in the ministry of the church. And when I decided to go to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, my grandfather said, oh, that would have made your great-grandpa real happy. He always wanted to go there. Because the school was like a brand-new school when my great-grandpa Thorne was a young man, but he couldn't get to Chicago to go to school because he didn't have the money. So 
you know, there, there's stewarding that can happen, that can happen down the road. And if you think of the fact, I'm stewarding even my kids. And someday when you have grandkids, I'm, I steward, I'm a steward of those kids. So I don't want to camp out any more on that point, but you get my drift. Stewardship is a huge part of, of manhood. We don't own anything. We are stewards of resources that God's placed in front of you. And then implication number three of being an image bearer of God is that every human being has capacity. Every person has capacity. Now, what do I mean by this? Um, if, if, this if we were just in a naturalistic worldview where there was no God, then people have no purpose. And really, life just, just is about what you can get, gather, and accomplish. That's really what it's all about. Because it, in all truth... All even the relationships should be of a utilitarian purpose to make you either feel better or to get you something. But because we are made in God's image, we have a more lauded, a bigger idea of what this is all about. And so we have a capacity that if you compare it to, say, anything else on the planet Earth, we are able to, to um, observe, think, absorb, make choices in a way that animals cannot. So capacity, what I mean by that is, for instance, we have a moral sense about us. We have a we know what is morally right and true. We have a moral sense. Now, um dogs don't have this. Animals don't have this. When I was a kid, we had two dogs, a boy and a girl, and uh for whatever reason, we did not take them to the vet to get uh, neutered. And so Suki and Teddy, as far as I was concerned as a kid, were husband and wife because puppies kept coming from that relationship. But every now and then, um I would see Teddy on a romantic encounter with a neighbor dog. And as a kid, I didn't think to myself, Teddy's committing adultery against Suki. And Teddy, Teddy was, uh, he would do that right in front of Suki. It didn't really bother him. He didn't have a thought like, I hope Suki, I'm, oh man, I'm going to get heck when I get home if Suki finds out I've been with Fifi over here. No, no, it didn't bother Suki at all. And then it didn't bother Teddy. They were, they were still jovial with each other. Everything, puppies kept coming from that mix. Why? Because there was no moral sense. You know, the, the dog didn't make a covenant vow to the other dog and say, we are here, we're locked in for life. You know, this is it until one of us leaves the other person through death or through some other unfortunate set of circumstances. That, that dogs don't have a moral sense. People have a moral sense. Now, obviously, you're like, well, duh, that's obvious. But if you actually think about the created order, we, we do have something that is so dynamically different than anything else on the planet Earth that if it was just purely a naturalistic worldview, wouldn't it make sense that some other creatures on Earth would have something of the moral sense of humanity. Shouldn't there be something that has that sense like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. A gorilla maybe, but they don't. Now, scientists will observe gorillas, you know, Jane Goodall and others will observe them and say they have personality traits and so forth and can have different emotions, but that's us expressing upon the animal how we feel and trying to interpret from our set of lenses how the animal feels. And, and there might be some expressions of affection because they're in little groups together, but the moral sense, this is something we have. We have a conscience. We have, we can, you ever done something and then haunted by the thing you did that you know you shouldn't have done? Am I the only person in the room, right? All of us, 100% of us. At some point or another, it's like, shouldn't have done that. And then we're haunted by everything from five minutes to an hour to the rest of our life for the thing we did that we know we shouldn't have done. This, this is unique to people because God's given us the capacity to feel the moral weight for our failures. 
That is actually a gift from him. Can you imagine what the world would be like if no one ever had a, like a conscience about what they had done? How awful would that have been? In fact, some people don't have a conscience. They're called serial killers. Or uh, they commit genocide. And then we look at them and go, that's not even human. And we're right. It's not. Because as people, we have a conscience. I'll do one more and then we'll get to our word for this one and wrap it up. So the other, the other idea here with uh, capacity is we have a capacity to worship. We build, of all creatures on the planet Earth, we build houses of worship that we go to. Now think about that. Isn't that interesting and a little bit strange? Like, again, compared to gorillas, gorillas don't build shrines to bananas or something, right? And they don't go and they pay homage to it and leave bananas for whatever it is they're worshiping. Gorillas don't do that. Birds. Birds don't do that. No animal does that. Mice don't do that. Cool as lions are. Lions don't do that. But we have a capacity to worship. In fact, if we don't worship God, we worship other things. We build different kinds of shrines. Just think about the various things that we build, that we frequent, that we give homage to, that we talk about. They become an aspect of worship, an adoration. We have this capacity to do that. And so as, as, I, um, as I wrap up our uh, time this morning before we move into table discussion time, uh, and the word there is honor. The word for the word for capacity is honor. And, and, and this is this uh, ethereal concept that, uh, and I say this all the time, is we want to be men of honor. We want to be honorable. We want to honor God in all things. This is this like a, a thing that you can't see, but you know it's there. Because we also know when it's not there because we call that dishonor. Gene served honorably in our armed forces. In fact, he was a, was a technical term honor guard at the White House. So in some of the Bush, uh, uh, George W. Bush years, uh, if you see White House pictures, sometimes you'll see Gene in his, uh, in his uniform standing there uh, as an honor guard who also served other functions within the White House. Pretty cool. I don't know if you all knew that. That's Gene. That's why I asked for his autograph regularly. It's pretty cool that he did that. And, and you get that position because you have some physical abilities, but you are also an honorable person. So an honor guard is an honorable person, and we honor that, and we do not honor dishonor. So this is a key word for us as men to think about. So let me just kind of conclude with where we began, and this will be a hint at next week. So the conclusion is, um, just as a reminder, is uh, the scriptures, where we, where we all started with is, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And the emphasis for today has been image. And the hint of next week will be the hour. Is that God did something here in the way he created us. When he says, let us, in our, there is, there is something profound in, in the use of pronoun there. And I know you got up really early in the morning to talk about pronouns, right? You're like, I really hope we talk about pronouns this morning. I hope that's the word from the Lord for me today. But this is, this is part of why we even gather here. Because in some ways you think, why don't I just stay in bed? I mean, why don't I just get a good book on what does it mean to be a, like a godly man? Have a little, like maybe get an, a devotional email to me that reminds me how to be a godly man. Why don't I just do some personal devotions and come to church with my friends or family? 
on Sundays, that, that would probably be good enough. Why, why get up at oh dark 30 on a Thursday morning and come in and do this? It's because from the very beginning, when we were made in God's image, he gave us this capacity, this need for relationship. That we're not going to get where we want to get on our own. That's not going to happen. And that, this is the hard part for men. That is not a flaw in us, but actually that's part of the strength built into us by God Almighty, who exists perpetually as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So that's a little hint of what's coming next week. But as you turn to your table, there's some discussion questions there. And my encouragement is that you take these lessons each week and that you let these be your reflection time. So the questions that you discuss today... Some of those questions you might feel 100% comfortable talking about at the table, and some of these questions you might go, you know what, I, I we'll talk about them like at a surface level, but you'll drill down, journal about them, pray them through, talk them through, uh, maybe one-on-one with another guy at the table throughout the week, but you'll, you'll drill into what does this mean to me? What does it mean that my origin is so deeply rooted in the image of God? So I'll pray briefly. And then uh, if you're new, just so you know, at 745, I'll come up and dismiss this in prayer. So let's pray, and then we'll have some table discussion time. God, it's good to get together this morning, open your word, and, and just drill a little bit into this idea of being made in your image. Help us as men, help us as men really get grab hold of this concept, that we aren't just some highly evolved thing, some biological mass that somehow developed reflective thought. We are of divine origin. The very essence of who we are is to be made in your image. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and uh, we're, we're awed by that, and we ask that you help us live up to that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.